0: You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. It's been about a year, I reckon, since we've spoken about the industrial property market in Western Australia. And whilst it's quite niche, most people listening today might not have a lot of connection with the industrial property market. One, it's really cool to learn new things when you're listening to this show. It's really cool to get an update on what is probably actually the hottest market, I think, even more so than residential property in Western Australia and possibly the country. But also, it's interesting to learn about a part of the property market that whilst we may not have much of a nexus to as lay small-scale investors or owners or developers, actually affects our daily lives quite significantly. Industrial property is what houses all of the companies that provide all the goods and services that help our lives run every day. So it's actually, whilst it might seem quite a boring asset from the outside, it's actually a really interesting asset class in property in Western Australia and in fact globally that we should be looking at and understanding how the dynamics of that market are ticking along since COVID. So to have that conversation, I've got one of the most impressive guys I've seen in west australian real estate specifically in industrial property into the studio his name's nick goodridge he heads up the industrial space at cushman and wakefield in Western Australia. I'm really proud to have you in, mate. Thanks for giving your time up for the listenership.
0: Oh, no worries, Trent. Great to be here. This is one of the first podcasts I've done and congratulations on your series and excited to be able to talk about industrial property, which is definitely in the limelight. It's taken a bit of time for us to be the shining star, but it's been an exciting period in the market. As you've alluded to, industrial property was sort of the boring class of property
1: that no one was bothered with for nearly a decade or even more, wasn't it?
0: It was, yeah. It was definitely always bridesmaid, if you like, of the office and the retail sectors. Let's Um, be honest, it
1: was more the page Yeah, pretty
0: much. It was the page boy. So the evolution of the market has really happened over the last four to five years. I think it really came online during the pandemic was really when we started to see significant levels of interest from a investment perspective and in the capital market space within the industrial sector. And that was drawn on through different metrics that were driving the performance of the market. And if you just look at the market in context from 2019 to today, it's grown year on year and has outperformed quite significantly in the retail or the office sectors. If you look at volumes, investment volumes, and the capital market space, we've seen record acquisition of industrial property. 2021 was a record year, about $17 billion. Came off a little bit in 2020. Two and we're off a little bit now, but it's really just been driven by key fundamentals that drive any property market. And and if you look at the supply and the demand equation and and the way that that's been impacting our market, it's been quite significant. And the changes in the way that transport logistics, in particular, operate and the resetting and reshuffling of their supply chains, which was triggered through the pandemic period, out of necessity, as a necessity. Yeah, absolutely. So we've really just seen the demand in the market outstrip supply now for many years, and that's just been driving values. It's been growing the market in terms of stock and it's been the number one asset class globally from the investors. So I want to talk about supply and demand certainly for a lot of this podcast but mm. before that I want to talk a
1: little bit about you because mm. I know there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast or young people who think maybe I'd like to be in the property industry broadly. Mm. I'd like to use you as a bit of a poster boy if I can mm. about that pathway. Did you start as a young person thinking I like warehouses, I want to help people sell them? Mm. I assume not. How did that transition happen from I guess school through to being a leader in the industrial real estate space? Yeah, sure, it's
0: been quite a journey. So I've been actively brokering industrial property in the Perth market for over 20 years. I always wanted to be in real estate, like a really fun and sort of dynamic industry. And I sat down with a mentor of mine back 20 years ago and said, look, what do you think, residential or commercial? So you were in your early 20s? Yeah, time. early 20s. Yep. Questions that came back to me were, if you look at residential, you're going to be working seven days a week. You're dealing with a lot of people's emotions and you're dealing with people's livelihoods in terms of their housing and their number one asset. If you go to commercial, you're going to work five days a week and it's more of a numbers game and a relationships game than anything. So I just was drawn to the commercial market through some of that advice, but picked up, as a lot of people do in this game, picked up an analyst role back in the day when it was FPD Savills, which then evolved into a junior brokerage role that you know I just loved the process of selling and leasing industrial property so as an analyst you were helping put together information memorandums brochures for uh, properties you were selling yeah that's correct it's a really big data intelligence really you're collating and collecting intelligence and data for the brokers in your team to be able to go out and execute on their roles which is selling and leasing and listing property in the market. Telling buyers, potential buyers, whether they're family offices or charter halls, mm. how much this
1: place is worth and why and why they should buy it. And yeah. I guess that's the same themes as a residential property but instead of saying oh look at the cladding here or oh, the views are fantastic, we're not worried about the intangibles.
0: What we're actually worried about is quantifying
1: the tangibles
0: in, yeah, in, and that's industrial isn't it? Absolutely. It's not very emotive decision making in the industrial even the commercial space. It's It's purely driven by market drivers, what makes assets sing, and just looking at the performance of the asset and the drivers around it, a lot of economic information, a lot of economic data as to why this asset or this particular piece of land or this development site might perform well in the medium term or long term.
1: So let's say I'm a 21-year-old, maybe I'm coming out of a degree in university, or maybe I'm just really good at selling things coming out of high school. What would be your piece of advice to get your foot in the door in industrial real estate?
0: Would you advise doing it in the first place? Is it a great time to start? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great sector to be in. I guess over the course of my journey, the industrial sector has always been identified as quite a simplified asset class. Generally, you're dealing with single tenants, single titles. Our team and and, and a lot of the market deal in strata developments and development sites, but industrial is generally just an easier asset class in terms of assessment. So if you're coming into the real estate market, my suggestions would be to approach people, do a bit of research, find out who's active in the market, and if you don't ask, you don't receive. So, See if they need an assistant. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way to do it. You're um, selling
1: big sheds at the end of the day most of the time, aren't you?
0: Yes, we are. We do. We cover all markets. So we've got a large team that runs brokerage across the WA market. So our day-to-day is selling industrial property from warehousing and logistics facilities selling land, selling vacant possession assets. And then we have a a team that works in the smaller sector of the market that covers strata units and strata warehouses.
1: With regards to the market now, if we can transition into that, as you mentioned, it was years and years of really being a neglected asset class that wasn't moving, it didn't demonstrate a lot of value, there weren't a whole bunch of tenants piling on, as we know, in Western Australia because most of that was centralised into New South Wales, Victoria, I guess. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when you don't have a lot of attention, when you don't have a lot of pressure, you have a significant underinvestment in new supply because essentially you just can't stack it up you can't get it to work Cap rates don't work, even though it might be extremely cheap to build a warehouse, it'd be hard to find a tenant, get someone to move, for example. Is that a good characterization of why we find ourselves in the place we are now? That not only was there not a demand for new warehouses, there also, therefore, wasn't really a demand for new industrial land. DevWA, the government agency, is usually the one that picks a lot of this pressure up and does that work. Mm. Have we just had a long time of underinvestment, underplanning, and now find ourselves with a knee jerk reaction of the market? with regards to supply needed in WA and it just, as a tiny pool that we could never have supplied enough to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're spot on. Like in terms of the demand, the Perth market is quite a localised market. It always has been. That's through ownership structures as well. So we've only recently seen the growth of the institutional owner in WA, where a very privately underlying ownership sits within a lot of privates. And what's an example of institutional owners? The likes of Dexas entering the market through the acquisition of Jandicott Airport. Charter Hall have been a long-time supporter and player of industrial logistics in WA. Other groups include Fraser's, Centuria, ESR. So you've got all the big industrial REITs. Big money it's big money coming and playing in our market and supporting the market and I guess previous to the last five years where we've seen the majority of that institutionalisation it's been dominated by local private groups who are long-standing family offices. Just rich families they got old money. Correct and they just continue their process of developing for their customers and backfilling their existing space so that had been a challenge but really between pre-pandemic the market grew on average in terms of rents about 3.2% for the last 20 years. So That's in Yeah, it had been a very flat performing market and not a lot of growth. So why would you invest in it? If you're not in a market that's doing better than inflation, you may as well have your money in the bank. Yeah, and unless you own large tracts of land that you can really turn higher returns from development. It was a difficult market to get attraction to from an institutional level, but groups like Charter Hall have been here a long time and are are our largest institutional ownership and they've seen performance of the market compared to the eastern states, it it offers a lot more value, look at return metrics and profiles. But our growth over the last two or three years, I mean, this year date we've seen about 18% 18% rental growth in the market. So, for a very low base, we're now really outperforming. And that's just through the demand and the supply side of the equation. We just haven't been able to bring product to market to meet the underlying demand. That's where the value sits in industrial right now. The increase in the rental price is the
1: derivative of this relationship of supply demand, obviously, that we're talking about, but is the source of the value creation because it is the rent, as we've spoken about before in this podcast, that determines the value.
0: Do you want to characterize that and explain that again to a Yeah, sure. So, in in the assessment of any industrial property, it's really we're doing an analysis to a client of ours to have a look at where value sits. There's obviously two scenarios. You've got vacant land, which is generally fairly easy to value because obviously you just need to find comparable land Mm transactions, but you've got to understand what capacity that piece of land has and where it sits in terms of the market. We look at property from a vacant possession perspective. So, we look at value property based on land plus buildings or replacement value of buildings. And with the growth of the market and Growing land values. We've really seen vacant possession opportunities and capital values in VP, which is generally targeted by owner occupiers in our market, again, exceed all expectations. And then there's the investment side of the equation. So the investment analysis is what we do, looks at where the passing rent sits versus where a market rent sits and capitalising that income out based on the style, the size, and the location of the facility to hit the return metrics and the hurdles that the capital needs in order to invest.
1: And we call that a leased investment. The yeah. person who's buying is not buying because they have somewhere to live, somewhere to operate their business. They're literally just buying the rent. So if something rents for three hundred grand a year, they might pay $5 million of that because it'll
0: essentially reflect a 6% return on their money. You're spot on. So it's all a return on that income, but it gets a little bit deeper when you look at where market rents sit versus where the passing rent sits, in particular with this rental growth cycle we've gone through, we come across a lot of property where it's significantly under-rented. So the mark to market reversion might be 10 to 15% on the rent, which is where opportunities lie currently in the market. And a lot of the money is looking at those sort of opportunities.
1: So you're suggesting that the ability to buy something that's under-rented because you know that if you renegotiate
0: that rent, it will be higher, you can create value overnight. Correct, yeah. And that was evident in a campaign we just ran recently that Alec and M closed a, a campaign in Carratha Street in Welshpool where the assets passing rent, I think was about $111 a square metre. So that's the rent they're currently, currently being paid by the two tenants, it was a multi-tenant asset and we assessed the rent at $150 a square metre and that was picked up by an Eastern States investor. So immediately it depends on, obviously, the money that a group is willing to pay for that particular asset is Time dependent on when they can get to that reversion of the market rent. Mm. One of them was next year and one of them was the year after. So they're really going to be buying quite a sharp yield initially, but they're happy to take that if the mark-to-market time frame isn't too far out, which means they're you know, immediately seeing upside and, and value creation in that asset. Do you
1: often in this market see people buying something at market rate in terms of
0: the cap rate, mm. but clearly
1: under-rented where you know in a year or so time they're going to revise that and therefore create that value? We had Cal Doggett from Properties and Pathways on maybe two, three months ago, and that is essentially his whole business model. Find industrial and commercial assets that are clearly under-rented, a fair cap rate and then revise that rent whether it's in the settlement period or just after and straight away you've created that value is is that a strategy you see happening all the time and you're the middleman there or is it rarer and rarer harder and harder as the market becomes more efficient
0: it's exactly where most of the capital and the bucket of capital sits right now looking at those opportunities so if you go back to 2021 when we had a record transaction volume of about $17 billion across Australia, all of the groups were looking at that product. It was all long whale, fixed rental increase, very stabilised style assets, so really good covenants, great locations, and we saw record yields being paid for that sort of product. Given the recent economic headwinds and given what we're seeing in the market generally, and particularly in the rising debt costs that we've experienced over the course of the last year... Um, that's flipped and so the, the money that's active in the market and the buyers that are active in the market are exactly like the groups of property and pathways and other syndicators and even the bigger funds and the REITs from the eastern states, they're all looking for that value creation opportunity. Where it's, it's an insulation really of the, from the downside. Yeah, correct. So they need to be able to pop a rent in the next 12 to 18 months. That's about as far out as they're happy to go and they're being very selective obviously on location, style of asset and really drilling down into more of a an assessment of just really basic fundamentals of how you look at a property, which is what is the land worth, what's the building worth, mm. and then where is their opportunity. So we're really seeing a lot of groups also wanting to buy underdeveloped sites. So it might be a site cover of 20%, and they can increase the building by double or three times the building where they can really generate some value through that process. Like, you
1: know, for example, a property that's got a hectare of land, it's only got a two thousand square metre. Building on there and the zoning would allow it to go to 5,000.
0: Absolutely. So, in the right location, and currently, you know, with the market coming at you from a demand perspective, that's a really, really hot product at the moment.
1: When I think about the residential property market, I've been clear on this podcast, on radio, on TV, that I don't see a solution to the current supply problem, and therefore, I don't see downside risk in this market for at least two to three years. Mm. I just don't know how the industry is going to supply the properties that we need today and for the people coming in every day. That's the residential market. Mm.
0: What's your view on the dynamics with relation to the industrial market? So it all comes down to land supply. The Perth market, even when I started 20 years ago, you could identify the Perth market as a market that was starved of large tracts of zoned level, ready to develop industrial land. It's always been tight. And so we've sort of seen markets... And particularly the growth of our markets is north and south of the CBD as the urbanisation and the labour draw continues up south and north of the coast. We identify three precincts, north, east and south. The eastern Corridors definitely identify as our core market and it's probably one of the most tightly held markets in Australia. Highly privatised and we just don't ever see divestment cycles out of those groups. Why would you? Yeah, absolutely. They're just, yeah, absolutely. They're making their buck every year. Yeah. If they sell, they have to find somewhere to put that money. Yep, absolutely. So when you look at land supply, you can only really go north and south. And so we've seen the emergence of estates, particularly the last year or two, of likes of Orion Industrial Park at Henderson, which is Development WA's estate, all the way up to Nirubup, and then other pockets of land that's been coming online, Bullsbrook, Mewshea, and some smaller estates in the south. But the interest and the demand that we see from an occupier perspective is back into that core market, that eastern corridor. There's no opportunities to unlock land. There has been examples of some fantastic land releases that have been undertaken by local groups like Esperia, who have brought on online small lot subdivision estates, Roehawa Logistics Park, which is arguably one of the best estates ever created in WA way, that took time. Those opportunities are thin, which means land supply is tight. So from an investment thesis and an investment case, having no land supply in the market, if you're an institutional style investor or a syndicator, the opportunities that your tenant, you might have on a short whale or maybe looking for other opportunities, the opportunities to retain those tenants is really high. And so I really can't see the supply side of the equation changing much in the medium term. We're definitely seeing some more speculative product come on the market, and that's really driven by the institutional developers who are in town, so Texas at Janicott Airport, are building some really impressive spec product out at the airport. The privates in our market that have traditionally dominated the landscape in the core markets and had the land supply have never spec built. So that supply is going to come. It's going to be healthy for the market because we're currently running at a vacancy rate of about 1.2% in WA. Australia's national vacancy rate's 1%, which again is impacting all of this growth significantly. So land supply and built form supply is going to remain tight. And I can't see it really getting over 2% because the demand is going to take up what comes on and there's not a lot of land to backfill. So that affects the rental
1: side, right? Rents don't go down if there's no supply for the tenants to move somewhere else on. So do you think rents will continue to go up in the same way they have? over the last couple of years, or do you reach a cap of affordability in the same way you do in the residential market?
0: From a rental growth perspective, I believe that we're going to see it across the market. Our in-house view is that we're going to see it across core markets, inner core markets, which are the locations like Kudale, Welshpool, around the Perth Airport, in that eastern corridor. That's where we believe it will remain. That's off the back of a few things. If you look at the occupier demand that we have on our books right now, the majority of the demand is sitting in the building size range of between four to 6,000. If you look at where the demand sits, and where everyone's looking to take a foothold, which is majority of the demand sits in that eastern corridor around the airport. We generally believe that if you have product that comes out of the ground in those areas, you're going to see rental growth.
1: But is there any ability to provide any of that product? I mean, every single block in Welshpool, Qdale, airport area is owned by someone already. Yep. And they're not
0: selling. Yep. And there's most likely already a building there. Yep, you're right. So it's very tricky. So the only strategy really in those locations is either low site cover buildings and and owners going and pushing the button and and extending facilities and creating value that way. But other than that, it's trying to pick off brownfield opportunities. And I've been trying to do that for 20 years with the Perth private. And I can tell you it's a challenge. But we've just recently done a deal in Welshpool, which was a 10 year lease signed before the builder was appointed for a 3,200 square metre office warehouse, very vanilla, really good layout, really good design. And that, that achieved $171 a square metre, which in our data is a record. So that's sort of holding the yellow jersey in terms of a rent right now, but we had really strong underbidders on that asset. So with conviction, I'm pretty comfortable that for the right product in the right location, there is growth, but outlying locations and secondary locations sort of further south or further north, I believe we're kind of at a bit of an inflection point as to what tenants might be willing to pay, but we'll wait and see. Well,
1: let's segue into that. If you can scan us across the WA market Mm. In each of those pockets, what are tenants willing to pay per square metre? And what were those rental
0: prices, let's say, four years ago? Just an example, that deal we've done at Colin Jamison Drive at 171 a metre, probably this time last year, tenants would have been attracted into that space at, I would have thought, 135 to 140 a metre. That's a real bump. If you go to the Northern Corridor, which is areas like Malaga, Balkata, all the way up to Nirabup, Wangara-Lansdale, we've concluded deals up there in that three to 4,000 square metre building range of in and around that 135 to 140 dollars a square metre. A few years ago, that was around that 120 to 125 a metre, only 18 months ago. That's showing growth. But again, up there, there hasn't been a lot of supply. So if a tenant wants to be in that corridor, they're willing to look at different locations up there. A tenant traditionally in Perth would be Malaga-centric, if you like, but they're willing to go to Nangar and Lansdale just because of the supply issues. The Eastern Corridor will benchmark, again, around that airport. It's the highest value land, and it's where the majority of the demand sits. And so we expect that will benchmark our market, and it already has, with the example used at Colin Jamison Drive. And then the south, you've got precincts like Canningvale, Janicot. They're identified as core, so they're matching and competing with that Eastern Corridor in terms of rents. And as you go further south, sort of Bibber Lake, south through the Western Trade Coast, land values down there are traditionally a little bit lower, and so when you look at an economic rent in that corridor, depending on the specification of the building, but like for like, standard sort of vanilla warehousing, you're probably getting a slightly more economical rent in those locations just through land values. Well, a
1: lot of it's got to do with distance to transport hubs, distance
0: yep. to the airport at the end of the day, right? Absolutely, yeah. So the drivers for industrial estate are really, yeah, proximity to infrastructure. So if you're a logistics business that has a relationship with Fremantle Port, it makes sense to be sort of in that Southern Corridor. If you're a logistics business that want to be near the airport or around the Kildal freight terminal, that's why they hone in there. But really it's that arterial road network. But if you look at the Perth market from its geography, it's only 40 kilometres to Nirubup and 40 kilometres to Rockingham, give or take. So from a geographic perspective, it's a small market. So that for us is a reason why people want to be, if you're in distribution or you're distributing to post, uh, post office boxes or letter boxes in and around that core Eastern Corridor, Allows you to quickly and efficiently get onto Row Highway and all the major arterials that take you to the wider metro area.
1: So that's the derivative of the supply of new product coming on the market. That's rents. One thing that we have a bit less of a nexus with that I think is more of a national impact coming from cash rates, coming from inflation, obviously, is the cap rate, the capitalization rate, the yield that investors are happy to receive for their investment based on that rent. So about a year or so ago when we had Wayne Chorley on, who is a leader in this industry and you guys get on really well. Mm. His view was that despite interest rates rising, he wasn't seeing at the time and couldn't foresee a really large increase in the capitalization rate above where it was at about 6% at the time. We're a year on from there now. What's been the update and where do you see that going?
0: It's funny because we spend a lot of time talking with the investors. So who is looking at real estate? We'll sit down and our trips, monthly trips to Sydney to talk to the capital that's looking and targeting logistics the first question that comes up across the table is where are cap rates? And it's not just cap rates in WA, it's cap rates across the country. Traditionally, the eastern states and eastern seaboard, Melbourne and Sydney, are the most favoured markets at institutional level for large volumes of investment, particularly for new entrants coming into our market. They really do focus on the eastern seaboard first and then we'll make plays in Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth, but traditionally their cap rates and yields have been the tightest in the country. The volumes of investment that we saw in 2021 and 2022 coming out of the pandemic and as the market really started to grow and global allocations of capital came into APAC and Australia, we really saw cap rates get all time low. So when we were talking, Sydney was for 3.5% for A grade, stabilised long whale. Yeah, deposits it, higher than that now. Yeah, correct. Prevailing economic conditions, the rising debt piece um, has blown cap rates rates out. But the problem we've got is it's sort of twofold is there hasn't been a lot of transactional activity in the markets. There's only been about 70 odd million sold in Perth this year, two transactions.
1: That's nothing. No, obviously. it's nothing.
0: Absolutely. So, and that's just because... the gap there, do you think? Yeah, there's definitely a gap. Yeah, the capital is there at a national level. We've identified about $50 billion worth of capital looking to come and, and enter the Australian logistics landscape or reinvest and continue to invest in the Australian landscape. So it's they're ready to activate. It's just, when does it deploy? And right now we've got this bid to our spread between vendors and book values versus where the capital needs to sit and the hurdle rates that they need to achieve for their investors. So that makes it a challenge. But in Perth, if you're gonna ask me where a cap rate sits, it's a difficult question to answer, but I need to have a view, obviously. I believe that the cap rates are somewhere between six and a half and 7%, depending on the asset, depending on the size of the asset its location. That's just by looking at who wants to buy and where they're at in terms of their value and assessment, not so much where the vendors are at. So there's a bit of a standoff, and I think that that's going to play out over the course of the next 12 months at least. But it's heavily weighted to industrial and logistics from an APAC allocation perspective. WA will absolutely see some of that. And the story behind WA and the resilience of our economy and the way that we hold our own across the globe through, you know, GSP, population growth, our resources sector. We are the engine room of the economy. builds a very sound investment case for these investors.
1: It's the same story across all the non-residential market, really, when you think about the commercial market as well. There hasn't been a lot of transactions this year. There seems to be quite a spread between what the buyers are still hanging on to from last year versus what the sellers will be comfortable with based on their risk profile and view of where the cash rate is going. My view on this is that the sellers don't specifically need to sell most of the time in this case just like the residential market And therefore, it's really a case of who will jump first, who will blink first Mm. in the market. We haven't seen a lot of transactions across the childcare space this year, across the retail space. And I think it's because there is this fairly wide spread between the money that is there, Mm. that people are getting paid to allocate but can't allocate anywhere or won't, and the sellers who go, well, this is my price. You can take this or you can shove it, essentially. And that spread might be somewhere closer to 1% than... Half percent a lot of the time, which is really a standoff. And I'm assuming that that problem will be solved the second the market has a level of confidence that the RBA governor has done her job and is ready to move the other way in the same way that we're getting the confidence now from the Fed in the US. The second that there is a belief or even evidence that this rate rising cycle has finished, I think we'll start to see some transactions happen again. Until then, it's simply a case of no one really having the balls to put their balls on the line Mm. when it comes to making these decisions on where values are at because we've all seen what happened a couple of years ago where charter hall has gone and bought things at four percent and people have probably lost their jobs over some really poor decisioning at the time
0: yeah absolutely comes down to liquidity and so right now if you're a REIT or one of these big institutional owners, where your liquidity sits from a divestment perspective is in your logistics assets, because everyone's still targeting it, and it's still the number one asset class, but they're, they're absolutely finding it very difficult or they don't want to unload those assets at this point in time, given, as you said, the variance in the big well, don't up.
1: sell unless you have to, and that applies correct. to every yeah. asset class. Yeah,
0: correct. So, yep, there will be examples in the market where assets will be traded and they'll be traded at market and sold, and, and that might be an end of syndicate life or certain reasons as to why that asset or that that group of investors or a private might sell. But yet until then, the standoff will remain and it's picking the eyes out of it. But certainly in that value add, value creation model, there will be continue to be transactions, but it's a slightly different kettle of fish.
1: Nick Goodridge, really appreciate coming in, mate. It's been a very succinct but also informative conversation about where the industrial market is right now. My summary is we expect rents to be rising a bit more but not as crazy as the last couple of years. The cap rate, anyone's guess at the moment until we get some clarity about where the cash rate is going and we'll continue to see a few transactions here and there based on where there's clearly value for the buyer in this market. Until then, it might be a standoff for a little while and anyone who can find industrial land and build something on
0: it is probably going to be a winner. Thanks, Trent. I really appreciate the opportunity to give you my learnings and really exciting little period that we are continuing to find ourselves in. And fundamentally, there's, there's still some really good growth opportunities in our market. And I think we'll outperform at least for the next one to two years yeah, really well. So thank you. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!